welcome to the history of Vikings. On this podcast, we've discussed many elements of the Vikings, their military outputs, and their daily lives from forts to trade towns. Well, today we will be discussing Viking encampments, something that is a very fascinating uh, element of sort of the Viking story, if you will, and also something that supported and enabled a lot of their popular rating and trading outputs. I'm joined today by a returning guest, Dr. Christian Coymans, who is the author of a book entitled Monarchs and Hydrarchs, The Conceptual Development of Viking Activity Across the Frankish Realm. Dr. Coymans is a British Academy Research Fellow at the University of Liverpool, having obtained his doctorate from the University of Edinburgh. Dr. Christian Coymans, welcome back to the History of Vikings. Hi, Noah. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. I'm so glad to have you back on the podcast, Chris, if I may. Um, Today, I'm really excited to dive into our our topic of conversation, Viking encampments. Uh, This is something as I was researching and writing my own book about, you know, Viking activity across the Frankish realm, uh, something that I encountered quite a bit. And this is also something that was described in your book. I'd like to point listeners to an article that you've written. I've included a link in the description of this episode entitled Down by the River, Exploring the Logistics of Viking Encampment Across Atlantic Europe. My first question to you is, what do we actually mean when we talk about a Viking camp or Viking encampments? Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, so uh, the, the, the term Viking camp can be uh, a, a bit vague. So we could very strictly define a Viking camp as being something like uh, a temporary or a provisional base occupied by overseas Viking groups uh, to support and sustain and to protect uh, their operations. Um, and that would be that would be absolutely fine, of course. But in, in practice, that definition covers many, many different types of locations where Vikings would have Uh, dropped anchor, where they sought shelter, where they stopped for the night or or stopped for the winter uh, even. Uh, So sites where they uh, defended themselves, where they uh, built up their strength and their strategy, where they gathered provisions, where they produced goods and engaged in trade, uh, where they rested and and ate and played and and worshipped, and where they were part of much wider communities. Um, So both Viking camps as specific sites, as well as the act of Viking encampment, have been studied for for many decades. And and the more we learn about these these kinds of sites, the more we get a sense of how diverse they they were individually, uh, diverse in character, diverse in their in their interactions, and diverse in their uh, locations. So I think one thing uh, to emphasize right from the start, and, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this uh, a number of times, is that Viking encampments were a multifaceted and really versatile group of sites that played all sorts of different uh, roles to the, to the many people uh, occupying them. That is fascinating. What evidence do we have for these camps? Where do we typically find them? Um, so. Uh, my my own uh, recent research, uh, in particular, uh, has looked at early Viking encampments, so 9th and 10th century encampment, in three specific regions. So that's Ireland, 
England uh, and also the, the Frankish realm, which uh, took up most of, of Western and Central Continental Europe uh, at the time. Now, within that particular part of the Viking world, we are dealing with an enormous body of evidence for Viking encampments. Uh, in Ireland and in England especially, we have uh, a large amount of uh, archaeological material to work with, with a number of sites uh, having been uncovered over the, over the past uh, half century. Most significantly in England, Excavations have taken place in and around the village of Repton in Derbyshire, where a very prominent encampment site was first uh, identified in uh, the 1970s. More recently, uh, a site has also been confirmed at Torxey in Lincolnshire, uh, which would have hosted thousands uh, of, of individuals. Uh, and there's another site in, in North Yorkshire, uh, Aldwark, which has also produced uh, a lot of material. Uh, very recently, there's also been archaeological work done at a suspected uh, Viking site in the Cockett Valley in Northumberland, uh, although that material hasn't yet been published and the work there is, is still uh, ongoing. Now, we've got similar discoveries uh, that have also been made in Ireland. Uh, the early encampment of Dublin, for example, has become much more clearly defined in, in recent years. Um, and excavations have also taken place at other sites, including uh, Woodstown in County Waterford uh, and Linducal in, in, in County uh, Louth. Now, the Frankish realm represents a very different story. Um, even though there are a number of archaeological sites that we associate with Viking activity there, overall, we have nowhere near the same amount of material evidence for encampment on the continent. On the other hand, however, the region has produced far more numerous and detailed written descriptions of these camps than survive from, from either Britain or from Ireland. And I think it's therefore just as meaningful uh, to the study of these, these types of sites. Um, collectively, from the textual source material, we are aware of more than 100 encampment sites in these three uh, regions for the 9th century, and, and almost half of those are located in Francia. So we have a very uh, complementary corpus of evidence in a way, uh, the archaeological evidence being concentrated in Britain and Ireland, and the textual material being found uh, on the continent. And so we have, a, we have a very valuable opportunity to combine these sources and to, to gain very important sort of new insights into Viking encampment practices in a much broader sense than we, we previously uh, have. Um, in terms of the individual sites, we most often uh, find camps um, situated in coastal locations or along uh, navigable rivers, which, which allowed Vikings to observe and to control to some degree um, movements along these major corridors of trade and communication. Uh, sometimes we even see camps positioned on the confluence of multiple rivers or near river crossings and roads, which again would strengthen that, that, that local level of control and also allow for a more easy access into the, into the hinterland. Um, Camps were also commonly established relatively close to existing centers of wealth and, and population. So we often find them near towns and near harbors and, and, and monasteries. Um, 
And even though you might think that that would be mostly to attack those kinds of places, um, it could just as easily have offered Vikings uh, very valuable opportunities to trade and to obtain information there. Um, now, on a broader level, we also see that Vikings often set up their camps on the borders of kingdoms, so on the edges of political power. Especially in the Frankish realm, they, they actively took advantage of internal struggles and set up their camps in these politically uh, peripheral places so that, that regional rulers really couldn't reach them uh, very easily uh, with, with, with armed forces. Um, now, Vikings were, of course, very opportunistic, but looking at the places where they set up their encampments, we can see that they were also very well informed about the social and the political and the economic circumstances of the places they traveled to um, and that they picked their locations of their camps based on that information. Um, so it's certainly not happening randomly uh, in, in, in that particular sense. Are there any pronounced differences between the camps in the different regions, between the Frankish realm, England and Ireland? Um, so, yes, yes and no. Um, traditionally speaking, Viking encampments have often been seen as being very different kinds of sites in Britain and in Ireland and in Francia, with, with their establishment and their character being mostly specific to the region in question. Um, and as a result, these camps have often been studied in relative isolation uh, within those uh, individual regional settings. So Viking camps in Ireland, Viking camps in England, and Viking camps in Francia separately. Now, there's multiple reasons for that, that regional approach, but an important one is our tendency to use very established but very different labels to identify these sites in each of these three territories. Um, in Ireland, for example, a Viking encampment is usually referred to as a long fort. Um, that's a term that's taken directly from the Irish annals and which literally means uh, ship camp. In England, uh, Viking camps are mostly referred to as winter camps, again, in part because it resembles phrasing found in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Um, on the continent, we see a, a number of different words being used, but again, often in reference to terms found in the annals, words like fortification and refuge and, and a few others uh, like that. Now, in part because of this tradition of us using different vocabularies for the different regions, Research into these Viking encampments has also remained relatively divided, with people often considering the Irish Longfort to be a very different type of site than, than the winter camps uh, of England, for example, or uh, the continental camps. But when we really start to compare these sites, there doesn't seem to be that much of a difference between the way they would have been set up and, and organized in each region. Um, in a sense, we have attached that, that regionality to them, and, and the difference between the camps in each region is more to do with the way that we have traditionally perceived and characterized them, rather than the way that they actually functioned uh, in, in practice. Um, and I think that's, that's, not, that's not really all that surprising, uh, considering the, 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 the highly interconnected nature of, of Viking activity. We, we know that Viking groups would have regularly traveled and communicated between Ireland and England 
uh, and Francia. So there's there's really no strong reason to think that their approach and their their attitude to their encampments would have been radically different uh, between those those uh, three regions. What was the general role? or function of these camps? Did they serve a strictly military purpose? Um, were they more nuanced than that? What was kind of the general function? Um, so in, in general, uh, when we talk about Viking encampments, we tend to focus, uh, as you say, quite a bit on their roles uh, as defensive and, and, and militaristic structures. And, and that's something that's reflected again by some of the terminology that we commonly use to refer to these places like uh, raiding base and fortress and stronghold. Um, and in a similar way, we also very much emphasize their use as shelters during winter with uh, terms like winter camps or overwintering camps uh, being used as a, uh, as a matter of, of habit. Now, those two functions, so uh, the camp as a place of safety and uh, as a place of shelter during the winter, were absolutely very important aspects of Viking encampment. There's no question about it. But the problem, I think, with relying on those specific terms is that we do risk oversimplifying what these camps could be uh, and in the process downplaying a lot of the other roles that they that they also took on. Um, because from the evidence, we can see that Viking camps were often far more than just uh, hideouts with walls around them. Uh, they acted as command centers. They were armories, treasuries. Uh, they were storehouses, prisons, uh, production centers, marketplaces. Um, they acted as hubs of militant activity and commercial activity and domestic activity all at the same time. And I think that that terms like winter camp or, or or raiding base really don't do do justice to the richness and the abundance of activity that we see uh, in a lot of these these kinds of sites. Well, Dr. Cormans, who occupied the camps and how big were they? Um, well, so because these are, are Viking camps, we obviously expect them to be occupied by Vikings. First and foremost, um, right. but 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 what would that actually mean uh, in practice? Well, um, first of all, it's now very commonly accepted that these places didn't just accommodate men. Uh, we have an increasing amount of evidence to suggest that these camps were in fact far more diverse than that. So uh, both on the continent and in England, for example, we have explicit textual references uh, to women as well as children being present in these environments. Um, we also have uh, the osteological analysis, which is the study of, of skeletal material uh, from the mass grave at Repton in England, which, which found that in the case where sex could be determined, uh, about 20% or so of individuals were in fact women. Um, and not only does that suggest that camps may have been uh, occupied by wider family units, uh, it also implies that there may have been many non-combatants in these places. So uh, people, uh, both men and women, who were not actively taking part in Viking campaigns and perhaps uh, providing a more supporting role within the camp. Uh, so, so it's a far more uh, diverse and complex picture than we, than we sometimes uh, assume. Um, 
In terms of how big these sites were, uh, this really seems to depend on a variety of different factors. Uh, the size of the group, obviously, uh, the lay of the land, uh, the availability of resources, the length of time they expected to be there, and, and all sorts of, of other variables. So there, there doesn't seem to have been uh, one specific uh, camp type or standard model that Vikings would have relied on. And, and as a result, we see these places being established in, in a wide variety of shapes and sizes and, and in lots of different types uh, of locations as well. So in England and in Ireland, uh, we see this very clearly expressed between the different camps that have been excavated, which can range between relatively small sites like Repton, which are no more than a, a few hectares, and much more massive sites like Torxi and, and Linduco, which are dozens of, of hectares in, in size. Uh, so when it comes to Viking camps, it's really not a, a one size that fits all situation. That is very interesting. Now, Dr. Coimans, how long did these encampments typically last? Um, so, um, Again, just like when we're we're talking about the size of these camps, um, the lifespan and the durability, sort of the longevity of these places, really seems to have varied quite widely between the individual sites. Um, for example, in the textual sources, uh, many camps are only mentioned once, sometimes just in passing, and 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 these kinds of camps may not have been occupied for very long, um, days or weeks, uh, maybe a few months. Uh, but some of them do occasionally reappear over a much longer period of time, suggesting that they were occupied either off and on or even continuously over the course of many months or even many years in, in some cases. Um, so just to, to illustrate the, the contrast between the camps, we have an attested encampment by Vikings in Western Ireland, which was active for only two days in 968. Um, Another, uh, along the Rhine in 882, uh, seems to have lasted for only three days. Now, when you can, you can compare that to, to, to some of the, the, the Viking encampments established along the Seine during the 850s and the 860s, for example, uh, places like Wassel and Jeufos, which appear and reappear in the written sources again and again over the course of many years. So, that tells you that it can really depend on the site itself and that there's really no uh, standard length of time that these camps would have been in operation for. Um, then there's, of course, also the idea that a number of these camps gradually developed into something much more permanent, which we see happening in Ireland, especially uh, towns like Waterford and Wexford and Limerick and especially uh, Dublin are well known to, to trace at least some of their roots uh, to Viking encampments. Um, and for these places, uh, the line between a temporary camp and a more permanent settlement can be very blurred. Uh, and that's really an, an, an ongoing discussion at the moment about when do we consider a camp to no longer be a camp, but a much more durable establishment? And, and how did that happen? And where exactly do we do we draw the line between them? Uh, so those are factors that, that we also have to look out for when, when talking about some uh, specific Viking camps. Let's get into the organization and logistics of these encampments. How did the camp occupants keep themselves safe? Uh, 
Um, yeah, so uh, Viking groups usually camped in environments where, um, let's say, people and institutions were not exactly the most friendly to them. Um, and in order to keep themselves safe and protected in those environments, they usually set up camps in places that were either already fortified or capable of being fortified. Uh, and this could uh, include using natural features in the landscape or man-made defenses or uh, even a combination of both of those things. So um, one thing we should recognize is that uh, the process wasn't random. Uh, Vikings would have very carefully considered what the best places would be for them to set up camp and how much effort it would cost them to build their defenses. Um, and as a result, we can identify three distinct levels of fortification for these, uh, for these encampments. So first of all, Vikings seem to have preferred natural defenses whenever possible. So um, islands, peninsulas, promontories, wetlands, anything that gave them a strategic advantage and which required uh, very little additional work to be done. We see this uh, in the encampments built uh, on the river islands of the continent, uh, for example, uh, as well as sites like Torxey in England, which was situated on, on higher ground with the river Trent on the one side and marshland on the other. So making optimal use of the defensive features of the landscape itself. Um, Secondly, Vikings are seen to have actively captured already existing defenses for their encampments. Um, on the continent, we see them taking control of churches, of monasteries, of palaces, sometimes entire towns, uh, which they then used for their own uh, defensive purposes. Um, in England and in, in Ireland, we see similar situations appear. Uh, most famously, there's the camp at Repton, where uh, a Viking force managed to incorporate the, the local church of St. Whiston into its enclosing defenses. So in effect, repurposing the building itself as a gatehouse to the camp. Um, thirdly, only when uh, local defenses were found to be absent or insufficient, uh, did Vikings really seem to have built their own fortifications? Uh, so this may have been the case for sites like Woodstown in Ireland, for example, where we see these large uh, earthworks established to, to protect the landward approach of the camp. Uh, and we also have a number of descriptions of, of, of these large ramparts being built uh, for camps on the continent. Um, so, so these are the three levels of fortification, and, and of course they're not mutually exclusive, uh, but they do suggest that Vikings would have uh, aimed for a situation in which they would be as safe as possible, all the while having to spend the least amount of energy in building any defenses themselves. Um, now, there's obviously much more to securing a camp than just, you know, building walls around it. Uh, just like in, in, in any other military camp, uh, stores of food, for example, would have also needed to be secured against uh, theft, against weather damage, uh, against pests. Um, any non-combatants would have to be protected. Any uh, animals such as horses and, and cattle would have to be protected. Uh, and any ships, of course, would also have to be secured because they would have allowed Vikings to retreat very rapidly if they needed to uh, in an emergency. Um, 
So these would have all been very important aspects of safety in the camps. And so we should really consider that other security measures would have also been taken beyond just uh, building a wall, uh, a rampart. We have some evidence from the continent, for example, for Vikings posting sentries on the perimeters uh, of their camps, uh, as well as them uh, sending out scouts and patrols into the surrounding uh, hinterlands. Uh, and we can also uh, theorize that larger Viking forces, rather than all of them occupying a single camp, which would make them very vulnerable, instead would have spread themselves out over a number of different camps within a wider area, which would not only greatly improve overall security, but also provide uh, reconnaissance and supplies from across that much wider territory. Um, and, we, and, and, and in that sense, we might think about individual Viking camps as being part of wider encampment uh, zones or encampment landscapes. Uh, and one example of that might be found in England uh, around the, the Repton camp, where a potential second encampment site has been identified uh, at nearby uh, Formark, which is presumed to have been established uh, around the same time. Uh, so it's really worth reconsidering our ideas of how Vikings organized and protected themselves, not just at an individual camp level, but across a much uh, wider area as well. Indeed. And how did how did camp occupants keep themselves healthy and fed within the camp? No doubt they would have been exposed to the harsh medieval winters as well as all sorts of other potentially dangerous elements. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I think um, this is probably one of the most crucial aspects of Viking encampment, even though it's not something that we always tend to focus on. Um, we have to remember that no Viking force, no matter what size, would have been able to achieve its goals without a steady source uh, of food. And the success of any camp would have depended above anything else on how well its occupants were able to keep themselves nourished over longer periods of time, especially during winter. Um, so it's now commonly thought that most Viking groups were effectively uh, self-organizing and, and self-reliant. And so the threat of running out of food would have been very real for them. Uh, and we can see this demonstrated, for example, by uh, the Vikings who were encamped on the Severn estuary, so off the southern coast of Wales, uh, and this was in the early 900s. Um, this group effectively ran out of food, uh, with many of them dying of hunger as a result. Uh, now, to prevent that kind of thing from happening, Viking forces would have replenished their food stocks using a number of different methods. Um, so the most straightforward of those would have been, uh, of course, to hunt and to trap and to fish and to forage around the camp. And we have plenty of, of textual and archaeological evidence to confirm that this was, in fact, happening. So uh, we're talking about wild animals, uh, plants, uh, even mushrooms. These would all have been a very convenient source of energy. Um, but when we think about the sheer amount of food required by these larger encampments, especially, um, that demand would eventually overwhelm the ability for those kinds of resources to really replenish themselves. Um, and in that scenario, you would have to travel longer and longer distances to obtain the same amount of food. Uh, and in turn, that would have expended even more energy and require even more food to replenish. So uh, diminishing returns. 
So to prevent that from happening, Vikings seem to have diversified their, their means of acquiring food as much as possible. Um, and this might be why in some of the more durable camps, we actually find suggestions of Vikings actively taking up farming. Uh, not only do we have some physical evidence for the cultivation of land, there's also textual references to livestock being present uh, at these camps, which would produce uh, milk and meat and wool and, 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 and other uh, types of necessities. So this is a very compelling aspect of Viking encampment that really hasn't been explored uh, in a lot of, of detail uh, yet. Now, Food could, of course, also have been obtained through aggression. Um, and we have a lot of examples of Vikings making off with cattle and with horses, and in some cases with crops even. Uh, now, we already talked about uh, Vikings taking control of monasteries and towns and sites like that for their camps. And another reason for why they did this may be because these places would have already contained stockpiles of food. So it would preclude the need for Vikings to collect all of that themselves. Um, now, food was, of course, also secured as part of tribute payments. Um, in all three of the regions, we can see that Vikings were actively provisioned with food in some occasions. So uh, with livestock, with flour, uh, with wine, with cider, usually as part of, of regional tributes that were paid to them. Uh, so effectively to buy them off. Um, now, especially when we're talking about animals, it would have been very difficult and impractical to transport large animals over long distances like that. Um, so we think that they would have instead been used to support and to nourish regional encampments instead um, that were that were nearby. Now, finally, Vikings could, of course, also have traded for their food by exchanging it for other goods or, or for silver, for example. Um, and this could have taken place either at their own camps or uh, maybe uh, in transit or even uh, maybe at regional harbors and, and, and market sites. Um, but obtaining that food is, of course, also just the first step. Vikings would still need to, to process and to prepare that food. Uh, now, practically speaking, that means that uh, grains would have to be ground, uh, meat and fish would have to be dried and smoked or salted maybe, uh, and dairy would have to be curdled or, or churned. Uh, and we do have, have evidence for some of this activity uh, in the camps. Uh, we have uh, quernstones, for example, from Woodstown. Uh, we have a possible oven lining from Aldwark. Uh, and on the continent, uh, a site associated with Vikings at Perron in Brittany uh, has turned up uh, all sorts of pans and basins and cauldrons, some of which still contain grains within them. Um, and we have textual evidence as well. Uh, during the siege of Paris in 885, for instance, uh, the attackers are recorded as having feasted on boar meat and wine uh, and to, to have made use of a local monastery kitchen to, to prepare uh, some of their food. Um, but we've, we've mostly been talking about food now. And even though Viking camps were highly reliant on this, it's only really part of the story because uh, the need for water would have been even more important than that. Um, you know, just like everyone else, Vikings needed water every day for themselves to drink, for the animals, for food preparation, for personal hygiene, uh, for craft production. Running out of water would have been catastrophic, more so than running out of food. 
You can go without food for a while if you really have to, but you can't go without water for more than a few days. Um, so a secure access to sources of water would have been essential for any uh, Viking encampment. Uh, now, for most of these encampments, they could just use the adjacent river for that, which is a, you know, a steady supply of relatively clean water that you could use all year round. But we know that some camps weren't situated next to rivers. They were landlocked. So in those cases, Vikings may have had to dig wells, for example, or maybe even uh, collected rainwater. Um, at, at Perron, so in Brittany, we do have evidence for a well inside the enclosure. And, and, and Vikings are also described as having uh, drawn water from another well when they were encamped outside uh, Paris. So on the whole, there are many different aspects to keeping a Viking force up and running like this. And the need for food and water especially are critical to ensuring the success and the sustainability of these camps and the overall well-being of the groups uh, that, that occupied them. Well, Dr. Coymans, as far as we know, what other sorts of activities went on at these camps and at a higher level, who organized all of this? Who organized the activity within a Viking encampment? Um, yeah, uh, so 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 beyond the work of 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 keeping themselves healthy and, and happy and safe, uh, the communities uh, that were present in and around these camps seem to have been engaged in all sorts of activities, which uh, covered things like uh, local craft production and trade and, and maintenance. So to start with, any Viking encampment would have required shelters for people to rest and to escape the cold and the rain, but also to store goods, for example, and to stable livestock and to manufacture and to maintain tools and other items. Now, normally, we assume that shelters like these would have taken the form of canvas or leather tents, which would have been, you know, portable and reusable. Uh, but some camps may have also included more permanent structures, um, huts, wooden buildings, things like that. And we do see some of these mentioned in the continental sources, for example. Um, and at sites like Piran and Woodstown, the physical remains of more permanent structures have been discovered uh, uh, as well. Um, then uh, we, of course, also have craft working uh, and manufacturing. These are tested and we have uh, evidence for uh, uh, metallurgy, carpentry, ship repair, textile working, uh, leather working, and the production of all sorts of others, uh, all sorts of other items and tools at, at these kinds of sites. Now, much of that work could have been done by craftspeople. Uh, that were also engaged in Viking campaigns. But we can just as easily assume that non-combatants would have taken on that, that kind of work, whether they were men or women. Uh, but not all of that manual labor would have needed specialist skills to begin with. And, and some of the work may have been shared by uh, communities as a whole. Uh, and, and then we'd be talking about things like uh, shoeing and harnessing horses, for example, uh, looking after livestock, preparing meals, uh, loading and unloading ships, uh, digging latrines, things like that. Um, but I think we really have to be aware that in order to facilitate all of that activity, a steady stream of raw materials would have needed to make its way into these encampments. Um, and some of this material could, of course, be bought or even robbed. Uh, but equally, resources like wood and stone and clay 
could have also just been extracted from a surrounding landscape by Vikings themselves. Um, and it's it's pretty likely that this is one of the reasons why we see some of these encampments established in forested areas, so that there's a ready source uh, of timber nearby, of, of firewood, and of and of things like uh, like resin, for example. And in the same way, Vikings uh, might have even used local quarries and clay deposits and mines even. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have any direct evidence uh, for that in, in, in particular. Now, it's also strongly suggested that Viking encampments would have acted as venues of trade themselves. We have an abundance of, of hack silver and individual coins and trade weights and balance fragments um, identified at sites like Woodstown and Torxey, for example. Uh, and they point to an active local exchange of goods and services in these kinds of places. Um, we also have textual evidence for this. Uh, in 873, for instance, Vikings on the Loire are recorded uh, to have organized a local market. Uh, and in 882, uh, Frankish troops were entering a Viking camp at Oswald on the River Meuse with the uh, explicit expectation to be able to trade there. Um, and this strongly suggests, maybe uh, counterintuitively, that at least some external parties considered these places to be approachable. Um, and this may have even given Vikings the opportunity for stolen goods and coinage and other items to return into regional circulation uh, and offered them another avenue to obtain the resources that they needed for their own subsistence and their own uh, security. So lots of different things happening in these camps, uh, uh, for sure. Very, very lively and versatile places from what we can tell. Uh, when we're talking about how all of this was organized, um, I think it's pretty clear from everything that we've covered and everything we've talked about here that Viking encampments would have been very carefully planned and highly organized places whose success would have relied on precaution and preparation and teamwork and discipline um, involving communities in which presumably everyone would have needed to pull their weight and, and contribute their efforts and their skills to ensure the overall success and sustainability uh, of the group. Um, and I already mentioned this, uh, Viking groups by and large would have been independently organized, so self-sufficient and self-determining groups. And this means that their encampments were likely also independently organized. So even though uh, different Viking groups and different encampments may have been in touch with each other, they were not receiving you know, regular supplies in the way that a domestic army camp would have, from what we can tell anyway. So as a result, the establishment of these camps really wouldn't have been this sort of uh, this haphazard or this impulsive process. Um, these are things that really wouldn't have been left to chance. Um, even finding a suitable location that was safe, that was big enough, that had access to resources, would have relied on extensive uh, reconnaissance, on communication, on contingency planning. Um, and these weren't exactly, you know, the kind of sites that you could flat pack. So moving camp from one place to the next, especially for a larger force, would have been an enormous operation. And I think it's something that's not particularly visible uh, in the contemporary sources. Uh, in the annals, for example, we often see only very brief comments being made about a Viking group um, setting up their camp in one spot and then moving to the next spot the year after and then moving on again. But this really 
misrepresents and, and oversimplifies the sheer logistical and organizational challenge that those movements would have actually presented. Um, and I think it's really a testament to the, to the ingenuity and the versatility uh, of these kinds of communities that they were able to sustain these activities over a much longer period of time. Um, and if, if anything, it's, it's certainly very far removed from the, from the stereotypes of the, of the sort of erratic and disorderly Viking adventure, which uh, really isn't compatible with how we see these places being organized uh, in practice. That is fascinating, Dr. Coymans. An additional question, what eventually happened to these Viking camps after their initial occupation? Um, yeah, so again, it seems that different things could have happened to different sites over the course of their lifetime. Um, some of them seem to have been abandoned quite quickly, and we only see them mentioned in the textual record maybe once or twice. Um, but others seem to have lasted for many years, and it's not always immediately clear what happened to these places once a Viking group decided to, to move on. Um, we do have suggestions uh, from the continent, especially, that some encampment sites could have been reoccupied by a different Viking group after a while, uh, which in effect would prolong the lifespan of these places through active reuse. Um, and this is proposed for specific camps along the Seine, for example, and in, in, in places like uh, Louvain. Now, we also know that multiple Viking groups were sometimes encamped within a single location. And, and in a way, these, these notions of collective use and reuse really run counter to the, to the traditional idea of Viking camps being established and abandoned in this sort of clear-cut linear sequence. Instead, we find that the practical value and benefits of some of these sites could have reached uh, well beyond the interests of just an individual Viking group. Um, in an archaeological context, we also get the impression that some of these sites uh, would have had a much longer and diverse lifespan after their, uh, their occupation by Vikings. Uh, so uh, around the site of Torxi, for example, we see that uh, a local pottery industry really took off following the abandonment of the camp. Uh, and one of the, the, the prevalent theories there is that certain artisans, certain producers, may have in fact accompanied the Viking force from the continent and then remained established there at Torxi following the, the, the relinquishing uh, of the camp. Um, and then there's of course also the fact that some Viking camps were never really abandoned at all in a way, uh, but were continuously occupied and eventually uh, would have grown into very prosperous and thriving urban centers like we see happening uh, again most famously in Dublin and in other places uh, in, in Ireland. Well, Dr. Christian Coymans, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'd love to point people to your paper down by the river exploring the logistics of Viking encampment across Atlantic Europe, as well as your book, Monarchs and Hydrarchs. Before we sign off today, and thank you again for coming on the podcast to discuss Viking encampments, what is one thing you would leave us with? What do you hope listeners took away from our conversation? Is there anything else you'd like to add? 
I, I, I think that one thing to take away is that these were very, very complex places, very nuanced places. And uh, these were places that weren't just set up and, 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 and torn down in an afternoon. Um, there's so much work that we can still do on these camps. There's, there's lots of stuff to, uh, to explore. Uh, there's a lot that we can still learn about the organization and the logistics of these sites, as well as some of the, the longer term impacts that they would have had um, on, on their environment. Uh, and of course, archaeologically, we're only starting to learn more and more uh, about these places. Although, if, uh, of course, we could really use some more physical evidence for them on the continent, especially because that's where the material is still woefully underrepresented. Um, I think overall, the encampments really are a crucial aspect of the overseas Viking movement and presence. They would have uh, there would have been anchor points to entire regional campaigns, both literally and figuratively. And uh, they were also centers in their own right, centers of production, centers of communication, of trade, and, and centers of, of community, really. Uh, places for Vikings to assemble and to rest and to feel safe. Uh, so I think in many different ways, the encampments played a very important part in keeping the overseas Viking movement up and running. And, and we're only really just scratching the surface of what we can learn from these places. Indeed. Well, Dr. Christian Coemans, thank you so much again for coming on the History of Vikings and joining us yet again. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join us here again for another episode. 